Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Episode 3, Looker. Super 70 is a podcast meant to sync to play along with the film we discuss. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can download the commentary from iTunes, SoundCloud, or my website at www.thatdellandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the 2010 DVD release of Looker. It is also available on YouTube and Amazon Prime for a fee. If you press play on either the DVD or the YouTube video now, this commentary should sync with the rest of the film. Another Lad Company movie. When Andy Ladd ran the world. We open with a commercial which is essentially what Looker is all about, selling things. In this case, it is called Ravish, a cologne sold to women. And we'll get into Ravish later. It fulfills your desires, a tagline that director Michael Crichton wants you to remember for the rest of the film. The model from the commercial is in the office of renowned plastic surgeon Dr. Larry Roberts, played by veteran lead actor Albert Finney in just a minute. The model is describing to Larry how she is not technically perfect because of some flaws on her face and that she is being told by someone are millimeters off. Many people have come to me after watching Looker on my recommendation. They have said how much of a stretch it was to have Albert Finney play the lead character. Nowadays, this role would have gone to a much younger man, possibly in his late 20s, but In 1981, when Looker was released, Albert Finney, almost 50, was still seen as a very desirable leading man. It has been, by this point, over 10 years since he did Alfie and Tom Jones, but his attractive qualities still come through on camera. This was a rather different time when older actors could still play these types of parts. If you need any help in deciding on whether or not Albert Finney was ever sexy or cool, Just consider the fact that this man actually slept with Audrey Hepburn. The model from the commercial is Terry Wells playing Lisa, one of a group of several friends who has gone to Dr. Roberts for surgery to correct what Dr. Roberts thinks are rather minor flaws in facial features. Seemingly, Dr. Roberts is chosen because he is the best at what he does and his partner, whom you will see shortly, convinces him to do surgeries because it is assumed that if he does not do them, then someone less capable will. Here is his partner. You may recognize him from Sharky's Machine, same year, cop drama with Burt Reynolds. So to begin with, we're wondering why these already beautiful women feel the need to have more surgery or any surgery at all. Thus begins the plot of Looker, which starts out convoluted and then gets very simple as we go. This is, believe it or not, a PG film. There was no PG-13 when Looker was released, and there was a huge gulf between PG and R. It was largely assumed that if your film did not have extreme violence or vulgar language, then your movie would get approved with a PG rating. This meant all kinds of things finding their way into a PG rating system that really should have been marked as R. There was no NC rating system, only an X. So if your film had too much of whatever the MPAA didn't like it, you then it found yourself in the wrong theaters in the wrong part of town, 
and your film was doomed. Two films that carried X's were The Wild Bunch for violence, which was argued down to an R, but when it was recut 30 years later, they gave it an X again. And the NPAA had to be reminded that they didn't put anything else in the movie. That was 1968, and the very next year was Midnight Cowboy, which by today's standards had very minimal nudity, nudity, but was essentially about a very upsetting theme, particularly male prostitution. But for these reasons, Looker has a huge amount of nudity that is rated PG that we would not feel comfortable with today, even in a PG-13 rating system, which only allows, for instance, one fuck. Keep that in mind when you watch Looker. This is not for kids. However, I'll be honest with you in saying that I would rather have my kids watch two people have sex than one blow the other's brains out saying, motherfucker. The model Lisa is getting ready for a date in Los Angeles' apartment that looks like it came out of a Superman set from Niagara Falls. We experience a number of striking things that make us feel unsettled when she opens the door. Lisa goes into a daze. The door will slam. The dog will be inexplicably locked into a closet. And soon you will see an unexplained briefcase with something missing from its foam mold. What is going on? Crichton is a master of suspense, and we will get into his past with the film industry and his future with it in a moment. But first, we see Lisa in a daze, not knowing where she is or what is going on, and she will accidentally fall to her death. The police will find no cause for suicide, though she jumped, but they will find a pin in Lisa's couch from Dr. Roberts' office and a button to a tweed jacket on her bed. Clues that will lead them to Roberts, her last important appointment, his plastic surgery clinic. This outfit was rather racy back then. Michael Crichton is best known for being an author of more than a dozen books that challenge the traditional narrative. His first book published when he was a practicing medical doctor was A Case of Need, which was about the very touchy issue of abortion before the landmark Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. This was the basis for the film The Carey Treatment, named after the lead character, with James Coburn starring as the doctor trying to solve a murder that his friend and fellow colleague is accused of. The colleague is none other than James Hong from Blade Runner fame, and it is felt that the real reason Hong is being arrested is because he performs abortions. In 1969, Crichton published The Andromeda Strain, a frightening look at contagions and viral outbreaks 25 years before The Hot Zone was published. In 1980, Crichton released Congo, about pharmaceutical companies competing in third world nations for raw materials. He's probably most famous for his book Jurassic Park, published in 1990, that not only sold millions more than all of his previous books combined, but also lead to the most successful franchise in Universal Pictures history. His next two books, Rising Sun in 1992 and Disclosure in 1994, introduced readers to the internet and virtual reality in his book Airframe and 1999 covered the issue of plane crashes. Crichton was known for introducing state-of-the-art technological ideas, finding a very different angle on societal pressure, and he was not without controversy. His entire career from his first novel includes controversy. It's not just the cloning issues in Jurassic Park or the humanitarian issues in Congo, or the racial issues in Rising Sun. 
Crichton was called every name in the book when he posited the idea that a man could be the victim of sexual harassment in his book Disclosure, even if that man was pressured into having sex. One of his last books, State of Fear, in 2004, took on the very thorny issue of global warming. As a novelist, Crichton was usually ahead of the curve when it came to a technology in predicting which way humanity heading. You'll see many things in Looker that are ahead of the curve as well, and despite the idea that audiences love to see things like Looker, the fact is most films that are ahead of the curve are usually not admired and left in the dustbin for later. Looker is one of these films. It is greatly underappreciated due to the number of factors that we'll get into as we go, but one is, for instance, the dated soundtrack, and of course, the hairdos. Here we see Larry eventually turn down a date from Susan Day, one of his former patients. Susan Day is formerly of the Partridge family and quite the sex object in the late 1970s. She's perfect for the role of Cindy, another model who Larry has corrected using exact data points given to the models by a company named Digital Matrix. We'll see more of them soon. Crichton directed seven films in his career, but the three that he is most known for are Westworld, 1973, Coma, 1978, and Looker, 1981. All of these films took on subjects that are interesting to audiences as original ideas. Westworld was about a man versus machine. Coma was about the medical industry's exploitation of patients. And Looker is ostensibly about the obsessive relationship the advertisement industry has with beauty, but it is more about corporation manipulation as an evil of consumerism. He also directed the Tom Selleck vehicle Runaway in 1984, but we're not going to talk about Runaway, much like everyone else is not going to talk about it, because it sucks. Dr. Roberts is going to be interviewed by the police, about Lisa's suicide when they find curiosities about it, such as the pin and the button. And the detective finds it even more curious that he's missing these items on the jack that he happens to be wearing. Lisa's patient file is also missing, and though this makes the police very suspicious, it makes Larry even more suspicious. And here is where the evil corporation Digital Matrix has overplayed their hand. Larry and Albert Finney, for that matter, is not a young man in his physical prime. He's also not, at this stage, someone who looks like he would risk everything for finding out something, even if it clears his name. Larry looks like someone who would lawyer up if he were blamed for something that he didn't do and let his money try to get him out of whatever situation he's in. Larry looks, for all intents and purposes, as an everyman, that is the master stroke of casting Finney, as opposed to, say, Burt Reynolds or Harrison Ford or any other number of leading men from this era. If you look at the backdrops in these sets, you'll see some amazing production design that still holds up to this day. Looker tries not to be dated, but due to the soundtrack and the hairdos, it's impossible. 
But the sets and the backdrops out of the windows in every set in this film, the window really tries to, to bring a sense of normality to you. And if you can ignore the obvious things that stand out in 1980, like some of the bell-bottom pants later on, the fat ties, the collars, then you really can believe in what is going on. And Crichton wants you to feel this way, that everything looks as normal as possible so that when he starts throwing you curveballs later, that those curveballs really stand out. And it works. Crichton is also establishing the idea that he's letting you in on certain things. In 1980, plastic surgery wasn't that exposed, not like it is now. And the only people who could really afford it then were the rich and famous. So to go to this environment and see what's going on was kind of an expose. So when you see other things in liquor that are a bit out of the normal, you get the sense that while you don't know everything about plastic surgery, you do know that it exists. And while you might not know everything about subliminal messages, now you feel like the film is letting you in on that truth as well as the earlier truth. This is an excellent time to bring up Dorian Harewood. He's a fantastic actor playing a cop here, a lieutenant in the LAPD. If you can suspend your belief at this, that a police department as racist as the LAPD in 1980 would have had a black department head, then you can see how easily Harewood slips into this role. Cops that are not the center of the story need to blend into the environment so they can slip in and out of the plot without you questioning it. And Harewood is awesome doing this in Looker. He has been in tons of TV. Since Looker, he was in The Falcon and the Snowman. He played Eight Ball in Full Metal Jacket. But he's probably best known for his huge volume of voice acting for Marvel and DC animated series. You can see Larry here get his gears turning as he's being questioned. Something is rotten. And you can tell it's not only puzzling him, but eating at him. And here is a bit of a one-two switch where Crichton is almost setting you up so that you think this is going to be Larry versus the LAPD. But the film turns in on this scene to Larry being proactive and wanting to find out what's going on with his clients. Remember that Larry, like Crichton, was a doctor and he took the Hippocratic Oath to help patients and do everything he can not to harm them. This is important background to Larry and to Looker. The medical industry should not be geared towards selling women. It should be geared towards helping people. But our society and our culture is so twisted by consumerism that women are just not treated like objects. They're treated like slaves. And that's been going on since the first caveman hit the first cavewoman on the head to drag her away. Women who are perfectly normal, or some who might think they are already aesthetically pleasing to the norms of society, are being taught that being normal is not enough or that being beautiful is not enough, or that being a supermodel is not enough. Nothing is ever enough. You have to have surgery to attain someone else's perception of perfect, and once you do that, and you've served your purpose, which is to sell as many widgets as possible, then you are disposed of. Because you're not needed anymore. There is an entire sideline here that could take up the whole movie. What is fashion? Who dictates fashion? Who determines fashion? Who determines what people look like? All of that. Is it Kate Moss's fault that she looks so thin and caused the waif look? Well, no. She's small because she was born small. Someone chose her to be a model because they like the way that she looks. And so who is that person? Is it Richard Avedon's fault 
because he's responsible for launching the careers of so many supermodels. Well, no, really. He likes Cindy Crawford's looks, so he photographs her and sells the photos. Is it Avedon's fault that someone who wants to pay an enormous price for pictures of Cindy Crawford? Well, who's buying these photos? Is it Vogue? So who is choosing these pictures at Vogue? Anna Wintour has been the editor-in-chief at Vogue since 1988, and I'm sure she's responsible for the majority of models chosen to be on the cover and on the inside of Vogue. Is it her fault for stripping Mila Jovovich down to nothing when she was still a minor and putting her on the cover of Vogue? Well, ask Mila Jovovich if she minds or if she thinks that hurt her career, and I'm sure she doesn't think so. That is, she sold a lot of copies, and I'm sure that people came back to buy more. That purchasing power feeds Vogue, feeds Wintour, feeds Avedon, feeds Linda Evangelista and Iman and whoever else that you care to name. And who exactly is buying these magazines? Men, I'm sure, are not too interested in women's fashion as Vogue or Cosmopolitan frame it. Sure, they look at FHM or Maxim or Playboy or whatever, but are they driving the fashion? No. Largely, women drive the fashion. Men have not really determined what women dress like for decades. In a large sense, women dress for other women, not for men. If you really want to get into this thorny issue, there's a few extra resources you can access quickly. The first is an amazing interview that Mark Marin did with Cindy Crawford, which is on his What the Fuck podcast. Crawford really stands up for women, stands up for fashion, and is just not having this blame game that goes around and around and around forever. It's really quite enlightening, and I recommend that you check it out. Another resource is the book The Devil Wears Prada by Lauren Weisberger and the film of the same name by David Frankel. In that film, Meryl Streep plays the editor of a highly influential fashion magazine, kind of like Vogue, and Anne Hathaway plays her assistant, kind of like Lauren Weisberger, who for a very long time was Anna Wintour's assistant. The film is a comedy, though there is a rather enlightening scene in which Meryl Streep, who obviously is playing Wintour, criticizes Hathaway's dismissal of the fashion industry. Hathaway thinks it's all a bunch of shit. Streep glances at her sweater and notes the color and the cut, which Streep's character picked out for the cover of one of her magazine issues. Sweater eventually went down from haute couture to midway runway flair, and eventually to a rack and target, where Hathaway's character bought it dismissively, thinking it was so simple. She even probably pronounces the store Target. Thus, she didn't care about the fashion, though the statement she made by purchasing the sweater proved that she did care about fashion. This stunt was an amazing feature in the days before CGI, and frankly in the days before a lot of filmmakers who gave a shit about what producers think. It violates several films. Look at that. Just amazing. Several film rules. Never do a stunt in the nude, and I know this is not nude, not really, but really it might as well be. Never open the woman's legs. Never shoot in 48 frames per second, although here the stunt was filmed in 48 FPS and transferred to the standard film rate, so when they slow it down, it it doesn't look blurred. There's a huge controversy now about 48 FPS and how it's marketing gimmick and all of that, and I'm but I'm all for it. I hate watching an action scene on a screen that's 100 feet wide and I can't see anything 
because whatever is moving is so blurred because the FPS is not high enough. In 48 FPS, you can see everything. Peter Jackson did this for two of his Hobbit movies, and he was called every name in the book. Personally, I, I like to see what I'm paying for. So props to that stunt woman, whoever she was. Amazing stunt. So now Robert knows without a doubt that something is wicked is going on, and he knows that he's the prime suspect, and he's got to do something. And here is where a lot of people would just shut themselves off in their home and hire some protection and a lawyer, but not Larry Roberts. He's going to be proactive because he realizes what is at stake just isn't his career, but the lives of these girls who trusted him to take care of them. Remember, he's a doctor, and like Crichton, he feels obligated to do something even at the cost of his own life. So he tracks down Cindy, who in the next scene, and all of a sudden starts cold trailing her around like he wants to take her to bed, and in order to get her to agree, because remember she's half his age or something, he name drops. And this looks rather odd to Cindy, because she just asked him for a date in the previous scene, and he turned her down. So he's going to drop John Reston's name, and this is going to get her to agree to the date. At this point, he doesn't really have a clue who John Reston really is. He just wants to shadow Cindy to make sure that she's okay until he figures out what's going on. He wants to get her out of the house because, believe it or not, he must be the only guy who doesn't want to sleep with her. A bit of a plot hole. Finney, in that previous scene, he's driving a Porsche 944, and I don't have anything against Porsche or people's tastes for driving Porsche or specifically 944s, but I will take a swipe here at the film, which I will never review, Brian De Palma's Scarface. Among the many, many scenes in that film that cry bullshit is when Tony Montana tries to impress the Michelle Pfeiffer character by buying the cheapest Porsche on the lot, the 944. It's like James Bond taking a girl to the most expensive restaurant in London and asking if they want to have a blue light special or perhaps there's a happy hour. I hate Scarface. Anyway, back to Looker. In the very next scene, Susan Day is going to show up unbelievably like an Audrey Hepburn. You'll see it, bun and all. Enter an actor that I have watched my entire life someone that I have seen as if he were a part of my life James Coburn and I have an enormous amount of respect for him he's only 8 years older than Finney he did TV all through the 1950s mostly westerns like Clint Eastwood and he gets his familiar face into The Magnificent Seven which skyrockets his career instead of a few westerns we get barely remember now. Now we're talking about Rawhide, we're talking about Perry Mason, Bonanza, and in 1963, The Great Escape. Here's the Audrey Hepburn lookalike, who is blonde. So Coburn's Our Man Flint films, which was in Austin Powers before Austin Powers, was very popular. He passed away in 2002 after he nailed the Best Supporting Actor role for Affliction in 1997, and one of my favorite 90s films, and there aren't a lot, He was in payback with Mel Gibson, and he's just a joy there and here, looking like an American James Bond. My kids know him as Mr. Waternoose and Monsters, Inc. You tell them that, and they have no problem sitting through the two-hour snore fest that is The Magnificent Seven. 
I'd rather watch Kurosawa a hundred times more before I sit through that again. Coburn as John Reston, and looking very modern in star fashion. He looks like George Lazenby in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Reston runs the enormous advertising firm that is Reston Industries, our evil corporate entity in Looker. And Cindy wants to hobnob here because she wants to work for Reston's firm. It's why she came to the party. Look at Finney in this tux. He looks like a million bucks. I don't know why Finney was never chosen to be James Bond. He's a better actor than Roger Moore and younger. But hey, he was still in a Bond film. If you remember, he played the gamekeeper at the end of Skyfall. So there. Some people say Lee Taylor Young isn't sexy here on the left, but look at her here and in the finale. She's a very sexy woman. People have complained to me that she stands out as not whatever in a film about models and aesthetically pleasing women. I say horseshit. She looks great here. And as Rustin's evil mastermind, because let's face it, he's just a figurehead, she comes across as very sinister. So this is subtle here in this scene, but Larry brings up Digital Matrix because they're the ones making the printouts to the millimeter, and Rustin thinks that if he doesn't say the obvious that Jennifer here runs Digital Matrix and Larry finds out later, then Larry will find it suspicious. So instead, he volunteers the information, and Jennifer doesn't like it, but she has to play along. There is a bit of movie coincidence going on here, And you have to play along. Larry is looking for Digital Matrix. And whose party does he take their next target to? The very person who runs Digital Matrix. Not doing a very good job of keeping her out of harm's way, you could say. And in two scenes, she is shooting a commercial for someone who's there, Digital Matrix. The script does not imply that the dinner made this opportunity available to her. Perhaps if we knew this, it would help out the plot in terms of reason and logic. But hey, this is Hollywood. Let's not get too upset. Reston and Jennifer say they think that it's a coincidence that three girls have died so far, but Larry doesn't, and he thinks it's suspicious. But not as suspicious as Larry taking Susan Day back to his bedroom and, get this, not fucking her. I think that's extremely suspicious behavior, and this is the biggest loophole in the film. It's as if this helps the plot because Larry's purpose is to find out what's happening to his clients, not to sleep with them. It's a professional rule that he doesn't sleep with his clients, and that's a gag line to the last scene in the film, fine. But it means that Larry is unassailable and a rather kind of Superman, or at least a monk, and nowadays this wouldn't fly in the film. And on the other side, it's kind of like that Adam Sandler film, Click, which I almost walked out on. Who the fuck skips sex with Kate Beckinsale? Certainly not me. Certainly not Adam goddamn Sandler. So, plot invalidated. And there's a bit of a lump in the throat here. Susan Day, the next scene, is going to be drunk on Larry's bed. And you're going to sleep on the couch. Right. Remember the commercial in the beginning of the film, Ravish, What is it that you desire? And here we're set up for Larry to ravish Cindy, but he doesn't. So Larry is rejecting the notion that he has to act like a male consumer just because that's what a corporation wants him to do, expects him to do. 
in a sense, trains him to do from birth, and every man since birth. She even thinks that this is suspicious, and in the morning she brings this up. She thinks it's even more suspicious that he wants to escort her to a commercial shoot that same day. And we find out at the commercial shoot that Digital Matrix is there, the author of the listings in Millimeter. They have a computer in a van that tells them what is the most desirable image, the most desirable shot for the commercial, the most desirable angle, etc. If you look in the background here, I love the American flag pictures up, particularly because Finney is British. Those will come up later. There are theories in set design, and particularly when you're doing period pieces, one theory is when you're filming a movie set in 1935, then you must have only things that were available in 1935. That's fine, but most people in 1935 didn't have their entire apartment decorated in 1935. They probably had stuff dating back to when their family immigrated from Italy in the 1880s or etc. There's another theory that you play on that. You set a film in 1965 and the set looks more like 1955 because no one redecorates their entire home every year to be current, except rich people. Then there are those modern people, be as modern as possible, except in a contemporary film, so the look of the film will be as modern for as long as possible. Look at that set previously and Larry's office, very contemporary. There are a few things that stand out, but most of that set is amazingly familiar even today. This is Terry Kaiser. He plays the commercial director. He's been in tons of TV and has a very familiar face. Around this time, he was in The Fall Guy a lot, which I watched religiously. He kept coming back and playing different roles, and I didn't even recognize it until years later. That's how good of an actor Terry Kaiser is. These slow-mo shots are done in the same as the car accident, and what Crichton is doing with these and the semi-creepy music is to put you into a layer of surreality. What you see is real, but he wants you to see it as a put-on, that it's not real. Like the film you're watching, the TV commercial, is entirely engineered to get an image just right. You see the film crew and the director and the extras, and you get the sense of the money that is being spent getting Cindy to fall a certain way. And you start to see what is being done here. This is more than just aesthetics of, well, this looks nice. This is manipulation. Digital Matrix, as you'll find out, knows their market in that they know what turns their market on, and they want to present Cindy in such a way as to fit into that market. This means having her fall a certain way. And the director and his staff are having a hard time keeping it in their pants, so to speak. But this is nothing new. In fact, these shots of Cindy are just Crichton doing the same thing, really. But he doesn't have a computer telling him what to do. But he does work for a huge corporation, and you can make of that whatever you want when you see Susan Day later in the imaging machine, which I'm sure is why most people went to see this movie. So what is the purpose of the beach scene? Why is Cindy not perfect in the shot? Well, to jump to the next scene when Jennifer is escorting Larry through Digital Matrix, 
we are informed that a model is perfect only when she holds a pose, and when she starts moving, the perfect ratio drops. To solve this problem, Digital Matrix is going to scan Cindy's nude body so they can use her digital image in whatever pose or action they want to keep the perfect ratio up as high as possible. This directly correlates to the scene in between this scene and the scanning scene when Jennifer makes Larry watch a video in which they track his eye shots. This is science fiction stuff in 1980, but Crichton swore advertising companies are using that technology now. This music reminds me a lot of John Glenn James Bond films, like For Your Eyes Only, that type of stuff. And here we arrive at Digital Matrix, and we are unsure if the cop is following Larry or staking out the company. Nice to know what tech companies look like back then. Haven't changed much. That sleek California look. And coming up, I'm not sure if this is the first card swipe in a film, but that was pretty forward when Looker came out. And the data banks in the next scene are really funny. Magnetic tape. Jennifer Long, access cleared. This ad that you're going to see coming up is unbelievable and really showcases the ravish theme that we open with. The tagline is, quote, take liberties wherever you go, unquote. Jesus Christ. Why don't you just show a nude woman on your ad and say, rape is okay. That's what this ad is. It's saying rape is fine, as long as you buy our product. And if you push this farther, the insinuation is that just by exploiting this model, you are, in a figurative sense, raping her too. I don't mean this reading to be a criticism of Crichton saying these things. I think Crichton and the film are bringing these issues up, so in a sense, they are anti-rape. But nevertheless, this ad is here, and it's not very nice to contemplate. The most amazing role in this entire scheme is that of Jennifer. She's in charge of Digital Matrix, this supposedly research and marketing firm, and she's planning and directing the exploitation of her fellow women. In that sense, she's only as guilty as the models we spoke of before, or the fashion editors I won't name again, or even the people that buy the magazines that promote this entire system. But Jennifer's guilt goes beyond this. She has created and is perpetuating a system that calls women not perfect enough and forces them to have plastic surgery. Then she has them scanned so that Digital Matrix can use their image and likeness without paying or consulting the models. A form of exploitation to be sure, but also a real, solid, tangible, and disgusting act of sexism. And after this, Jennifer is killing these women off in order to keep them quiet about everything Digital Matrix is up to. So as a woman, we have to say that Jennifer is betraying her fellow women in the interest of money, and that's not a kind judgment of her or her kind. Feel free to barf. 
You could make the argument that this is what people think of of women in executive roles, and this is the attitude of men to women in these roles. And I don't see that here. I think that's out-of-frame stuff. I don't think Crichton considered female executives to be these sort of inherent femme fatales. I think that's taking it a bit too far. But nevertheless, the film exposes that nerve. But one thing I will say is Jennifer is dressed rather manlike. She's wearing a skirt, but her hair is pulled up, and it's almost as if she's always walking around blatantly not wearing a bra, as if to remind people that she's not a man. In every shot in this film, she's not wearing a bra, and most of the time you can see her sternum. So while we beat the drum of exploitation, I will say that I'm definitely glad Susan Day had the lady balls to do this nude scene. I think it's the only one of her career, and it sells it nicely. Some thinks it is still exploitive. Crichton said she wasn't particularly happy about doing it, but it's here, and it's powerful, and I'm sure it helps sell the movie. I hope it helps sell the message. I hope that we're not ravishing her image, even if she jokes, even during the scanning sequence, and this is an air quote, help, rape. If you've ever seen the Terminator films, the first two films, Arnold Schwarzenegger arrives in the past as a time traveler, and in both films he arrives nude, much like Susan Day is doing here. There are a lot of Renaissance statues and Greek reliefs that have this pose. I think the male version is called a koros and the female a koron or something like that. It's usually carrying the connotation, here it is, of the perfect form or the perfection of body. Obviously, that is what we're going for here because after her surgery, Cindy is supposed to be perfect. At least perfect enough for Digital Matrix to scan her. In a moment, you're going to see a computer screen with Cindy's image that says Parallax on it. I guess this is a parallax view then. Interesting to think about and Of course, we see the word matrix on her image. She is being digitally mapped and inserted into a matrix. This is four years before Tron, 19 years before the matrix. This whole scene reminds me a lot about the the Tiesto video, Feel It In My Bones, featuring uh, Tegan and Sarah, which you can find on YouTube. And here comes the help rape line. Today, we're used to this idea. Animation films and live-action films are motion-captured by scanning an actor's body very frequently. Although it wasn't the first film to do it, Peter Jackson's The Two Towers relied heavily on this technology. Video games do it. Music videos do it. Soon, it will be so cheap that regular TV shows will be doing it. But in the early 1980s, this was really ahead of its time. Now we have actors being scanned and not even used. Their digital avatar is doing all of the work. Robert Downey Jr. dons a rather ridiculous-looking suit so that he can be digitally painted as Iron Man. In the most recent Captain America film, Downey even has his own face scanned and replaced over his own body so that it can look younger. This was also done in Ant-Man, 
over Michael Douglas, and of course Ant-Man himself had to be scanned to put him into environments that could not be filmed. Why is this being done? The end result of this technology is to make money, and that is what is happening here in Looker. They want to make money, so this is standard procedure now. In this aspect, Looker is two or three decades ahead of its time. We don't even talk about stuff like this anymore. Enter another prediction that seems ludicrous not only in 1980, but today. Robots that go wherever you want them to go without any direction. And if you think this is crazy and this isn't happening now, then you're not paying attention to Amazon.com. Amazon has revolutionized robotics in their warehouse system, and it doesn't look just like Looker, it looks like three decades past Looker. Go on to YouTube and look at how Amazon uses robots. It will shock you. It does look a bit fanciful, but in reality, Detroit was already using robotics like this on their cars about the time that Looker came out. And now, of course, it is more advanced than ever. So again, Looker is ahead of the game. One of the creepiest lines in this film is when the computer is altering Cindy's voice to be perfect as it thinks that it should be. And I'll always remember this line. Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm the perfect female type, 18 to 25. I'm here to sell for you. It's right up there with Sark's message from Tron and Ray's speech to Gozer and the Ghostbusters. I've got that memorized right next to the Gettysburg Address and the preamble of the Constitution. It's very profound. Or that's how much of a nerd I am. All I need to do is recite something from Rush or Prince tunes, and you'll never listen to another one of my podcasts. Look how pleased Jennifer is here at her work, and look how Larry is looking at her like she's a psychopath. I love this scene coming up, James Coburn smoking in the middle of what was then the equivalent of a server room. He'd be arrested and read the riot act if he did that today. But the cigar doesn't make him look more authoritarian. And without it, I'm not sure we would really know who was the boss here. We might think it was Jennifer. Reston is worried about a stockholders meeting the following night in which Digital Matrix is going to unveil some new technology to help their stock price. Of course, we're going to find out that there is something else that's going on at the stockholders meeting. They're rolling out new technology to push their marketing scheme and more importantly, new ideas. Does that look like a testing lab to you? Looks more like a server room to me. We're back at Larry's beach house and Cindy has finally figured out that something is up and when she sees that her friends and fellow models have committed suicide or have been killed in a string of very suspicious deaths, Cindy goes through all of the emotions you would expect someone to go through. First, she's extremely worried, then she's angry and finally upset to the point of striking out the very people trying to help her. But we can side with her by saying Larry should have told her what was going on way before now. She's not a child. She shouldn't have to hear it on the news. She should have known what was going on before she went to Digital Matrix for sure. Larry knew that there was something going on there. 
and instead of making sure she didn't go there, he used her to tag along to find out what was going on. <clears throat> so Larry is a kind of an accomplice here. It's pretty stupid, because once she is scanned, she is at risk to end up like her other model friends, and supposedly that's what Larry wants to help prevent. This is more than just a loophole of the film. I think this is an attitude at the time that bleeds through. I love Albert Finney here. This, this shirt bothers me, and I think this line is funny. Do you have a gun? Bang, bang. No, Finney doesn't have a gun. He's English. But furthermore, Larry doesn't have a gun because he's a doctor, and he doesn't believe in guns. In fact, Larry never touches a gun in the film only the looker device, which he uses only to protect himself. Flees aggressors, free Cindy. So in the following scene, Cindy goes to see her parents because in the time of crisis, those of us who have parents tend to go to them for protection. In this case, they can't protect her. In fact, they can't tear themselves away from the TV to even notice that she is in distress. This is a very simple scene that everyone can relate to. Everyone has tried to get someone's attention. Obviously, Crichton is just trying to emphasize the hold that technology already has over our lives. It's not too much of a push to see how technology can be further manipulated to, well, manipulate us. It reminds me of the scene in Time Bandits, which is just a few years later. The parents are not really involved because of the consumer ads on TV, etc., And here you start to get a sense of where Looker is really going. This is entirely a reaction shot of her parents watching TV, probably like they've been doing for 30 years. And as the film progresses, you'll see a lot more screens pop up. By the time we get to the finale, you'll see screens everywhere. And this was something that would pop out back then, but not now. Now we have so many screens everywhere that we don't even think about it. I've got three flat-screen TVs and four computer screens in my house, not to mention two iPads and three iPhones and an iPod. Screens are a part of our life, but not in 1980. This was so special. I remember watching Less Than Zero on HBO when Andrew McCarthy goes over to James Spader's house, and there's this enormous wall of TVs. Back then, it just seemed like an amazing amount of money. TVs. We only had one in my house when I grew up, and I think I was 10 before we had two. It's pretty amazing to think of now. Back to Larry's place, and he's going to start to experience time loss, and he's not going to be able to explain it. The screen flashes just to let you know that something has occurred or else you wouldn't have noticed. There was actually a concern over how they were going to film this, and I'm not sure if the effect is 100% or not. When I was a kid, I was wondering what in the hell was going on. It didn't relate to it at the time. It was just weird. It's not fully explained until later, of course, when the looker light gun is revealed, and it's a device, a kind of hypnotic-inducing device, that is a sort of research side effect of what Digital Matrix is doing. You emit this light source, and people go into a daze for a period of time, and they have no idea what's going on. So Larry is confused. He doesn't know what's going on, but time has passed, and there's stuff in his house that doesn't make sense, and you can tell by the look on his face that he's scared. 
So what is he going to do? Well, here comes another plot problem that we'll get into later. So the sink fills up here. The cooler defrosts. The TV skips. His beer is probably warm. Some very strange stuff is going on. Finney's action is to wash his face. And his acting is right on par here. It's an evolution of what in the hell is going on to I think I'm being violated in some way and I can't explain how and I can't explain why. It just feels wrong. And that is a feeling we probably get when we get screwed on buying a car or when an appliance shits itself a day over the warranty or whenever you purchase something you know is not made in good faith and you know that you're going to regret it, but you don't have a choice because of budget or timing or whatever. I felt that way endlessly, privately and professionally. There's a margin of error whenever you buy anything from anyone. And Digital Matrix can make you convinced that it's not a problem. Pretty scary, huh? If you're going to break into a facility, it's probably not a good idea to take your own car, but that's okay. Larry's not really a criminal. And if you're go trying to protect the girl, don't, for heaven's sake, take the girl along. Come on. And yet, he does this. The Houston Astros folks on TV, I hope they won that game. Nice rainbow jerseys. I'd like to stop and pontificate over the career of Nolan Ryan, but I'm more interested in why Crichton has chosen specific images on his TVs. Why a sports game? Can you tell audiences to go buy a ticket? Can you tell them to watch to the end of the game, even though you know that because Nolan Ryan is pitching and not Mike Scott, that the game is going to be over by the fourth inning? Can you tell the audience to switch to another channel and watch another program if the network station won't pay you an exorbitant extortion rate? Do you suddenly feel the need to vote for a new stadium referendum in, for your favorite team? The possibilities of what Digital Matrix is trying to do is endless. I remember watching something on the first Iron Man film John Favreau, who is a brilliant director, had his sound engineers in the meeting and they were going over the RT sound, the repulsor technology. Favreau wanted the charge up and the energy release of the RT to sound very distinctive, very clear and very holy shit like. Almost as if you're in the audience and you've never experienced anything like this before. He related it to Dirty Harry pulling out the 44. And the audience, which was him as a kid, just sitting back and saying, Oh my God, that handgun is huge. And of course, when the gun goes off, it sounds like a cannon. A very distinctive sound that doesn't sound like any other type of gun in any other movie. And that's what Crichton has done here with the Looker light gun. When it goes off, it has a very distinctive sound that lets you know it's not an ordinary gun. And you remember it. It's sort of a wiping sound. And that's appropriate because this thing is wiping time from your life. 
and you can pay attention to it in the next scene. There's probably more memory in the smallest USB drive in my desk than in this whole room. Robots again, um, they're not unfamiliar in films, certainly by this time. Crichton used robots as part of the plot in Westworld, and of course Alien had already showcased robots as realistic human beings. They look a bit weird and clunky here, but back then robots that were in use looked like that. Look at what the car companies were using in Japan back then. That's what GE was using, etc. It's not far-fetched. So, I've looked up every reference to James Morton online, the name in the scan card feeder, and I can't find anything that ties into Looker or something that might be a reference to themes in Looker for that name. It seems very random, and it probably is, probably nothing. But you look for stuff like that in the film, like Neo's door number in The Matrix, very amusing, ha-ha, magnetic tape, the way of the future. This is one of the things that dates the film like nothing else. And that's a risk when you do films that are on the edge of technology or predictive somehow. Crichton did this in Disclosure with virtual reality. And here we are a quarter of a decade after Disclosure. and Virtual reality is still not a practical mode of doing anything other than video games. So despite development, it's never been pushed or marketed because the market just hasn't responded to it as something that it needs. But Digital Matrix can fix that. They can create a desire for the product. They can create a desire for expired milk or electric cars or buying a house, getting another credit card. You can see where this is going. So here we see Cindy watch a simple commercial and there's something going on in the commercial, a subliminal manipulation that changes something in Cindy. If you spend any time looking at or studying psychology, you know there is a long history of subliminal manipulation in advertising. There's nothing new here. Coke has been busted doing it, Pepsi too, car companies, you name it, and they've done it. My favorite commentary on this is actually in Fight Club when Tyler starts splicing pornography into films like they used to do with popcorn and other things back in the 20s and the 30s. Now they've passed all kinds of laws so that you can't do that anymore. And, but it was a fact of the movies for a very long time. You sit there and, hmm, I want some popcorn. Why do I want some popcorn? And of course now commercials come on in your house and the volume on your TV blares because the people who program the volume levels in TVs assume that you've left the room to go to the bathroom or the kitchen or whatever and they jack the sound up so you can hear it down the hall. The guy in the commercial is supposed to look a little silly, but you had a lot of that type of stuff back then. Mr. Clean, the Jolly Green Giant. Lots of huge burly men coming into a housewife's kitchen to tell her what she needs. Unbelievably sexist. So there's a reason why a lot of these commercials have gone the way of the dodo bird. You mean if I bought a $20 product from an ancient mariner dressed like an extra in Penthouse's Caligula film, I could have cleaner floors? Yes, you can. You'll see a repeat of the Ravish commercial again. Same commercial. 
And you'll see Cindy's reaction to it as she starts reacting to the hypnosis embedded in the commercial. So she's being ravished. She wants to be ravished because her choice is being taken away. And she even says, I want this. If you've seen Finney's eyes, now he has these enormous bags under them. They become so huge that you just can't get over it. It makes you wonder how he got them. I know we all look different when we age, but holy shit. If you don't believe me, look at Finney in the last Jason Bourne movie, The Bourne Legacy with Jeremy Renner and Rachel Ice. Outstanding film, but his eye bags are huge. So it's time to throw another prop to the production design people. If you look into the book that Larry is looking through, the manual for the looker device, it's amazing. I wish I could have this thing on my shelf. It looks like blueprints and engineering schematics, and it has just amazing stuff in it that is on camera for such a short amount of time. It's unbelievable. To reference another film, and I'm sorry I'm doing that so often here, but look at Seven, the David Fincher film with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. There are some composition books that are filled with the ravings of a madman in John Doe's apartment. Someone, I don't know who, but I hope they made a lot of money off of doing this. They, But someone went through each page and wrote whatever on each page. I barfed a guy on the subway today. I saw a pretty lady crossing the ferry. I'm going to go murder someone tomorrow with 18 cans of spaghetti. Just crazy stuff. And if you're lucky enough to have the Criterion Collection Laserdisc of 7, and I have a friend who has one, whom I'll probably refer to in future podcasts as D to the K to the motherfucking A to the third power. It's got photographs of every page of these comp books, hundreds of these photos, and they're not filled with bullshit, randomized crap or Zeppelin lyrics or musings that someone who's forced to write in comp book for 40 hours a week or whatever. It's really crazy shit. And if you look at this looker manual, you see the same dedication. Someone took the time and the care to go through this page by page and make sure that it looks real and it makes sense. This is insane. And this is what I very much like to call Kubrickian detail. The buttons on the Discovery in 2001 all push down. Why? You never see a button being pushed in a whole movie. Doesn't matter. Has to be authentic. I'd buy that binder if the studio ever issued it. It's impressive. I wrote technical work instructions for everything I did at my last job. Nothing looked that detailed and impressive. And I was writing about real shit. So, while Cindy is being exposed to one hypnotic device, Larry is discovering another. The Looker device is something that we haven't really seen in films before or since Looker. Pretty awesome, pretty original, and it's like this fight scene. Just very cool. Larry is unable to defend himself. No, this actor is not Tom Selleck. I forget his name, but he's been around. He's a... He's a very good bad guy here. He's listed as mustachioed man. I suppose it's better than most of Samuel L. Jackson's credits in the 80s. He was sometimes credited as black guy. Anyway, porn stash here is cheating in this fight because that's what bad guys do. And I love the shot where they put Finney on a rail and the camera follows him through the glass. Brilliant shot. The girl in that commercial is so beautiful and she looks so familiar, but I can't place her. IMDb is of no help. 
if some of you are getting kind of tired of the slow pace, I'll address that pace in a minute. You'll be happy to know that you're the only about 30 minutes from the credits. Here we go. There's a shot on the rail through the plate glass. That's masterful. Crichton is known for being on budget and on time, except for one of his films, which got out of hand fast, The 13th Warrior, but that wasn't all completely his fault. But Looker is 90 minutes, and it's a good rule to keep a movie cheap. Obey the 90-minute rule. Danny Boyle is a huge fan of this. You want to cut costs by a quarter? Don't shoot a quarter of the script, particularly back then when film stock was so expensive to use. If you cut two or three reels out of your film, that was a huge cost savings. So if your movie is something like $10 million, like Star Wars, you could trim $2.5 million off of it by keeping it short. My parents took me to Breckenridge, Colorado to go skiing one winter, and I, I bought a, a pair of sunglasses like this to, to wear when I was skiing so I could look cool people would comment on them and I would say that they were looker sunglasses and they would just throw me confused looks. What's looker? The Albert Finney movie. And they just had no clue. So you should just be 30 seconds past the hour mark now. This escape coming up looks a lot like the finale of Coma, if you've ever seen that. If you haven't, you need to. Michael Douglas is amazing in it. Instead of a doctor discovering something crooked about an advertising agency, it's about a doctor that discovers something crooked about the medical industry, and it's a pretty good film. Obviously, Crichton sides with doctors. The director, Kevin Smith, is famous for saying, write what you know. Start with that and branch out, and Crichton has a pretty solid career writing books and directing films about medical doctors. It's familiar to him because he was one. I think this is why his films are so fascinating. In a way, and I mean this with as minimal disrespect as possible, but Crichton used to work for a living, if you know what I mean. He wasn't raised since birth to be a Hollywood accolade. He did something else, something other than wait tables while auditioning and starving. He brings something to his stories that is authentic because he is familiar with it. A lot of writers have to do tons of research. As a writer, I will tell you that I have to do tons of research just to write this paragraph. I know shit about the music industry, but I had to write like I did, so I had to put myself into that world. Most directors who direct medical dramas or most writers who write screenplays are not medical doctors. Crichton was, so he brings that to the table. I'm not saying that he didn't do research. I'm not implying that at all. I'm just saying he was familiar with it. He was already knowledgeable, and he had an aptitude for it, and it helped him convey the story better, whether it was written in the film or not. Reston was practicing there for a huge corporate event. Reston Industries is going to unveil something new and cool to impress consumers. This isn't new. Companies have been doing this forever, especially car companies. Look at this new Edsel, isn't it amazing? But nowadays we have Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook and before that Bill Gates and Steve Jobs pioneered this, the art of corporate announcements. The CEO or whatever gets up and announces a product and everyone cheers them like it's the greatest thing ever. 
It's rather sycophantic now, and we've come to expect it, but back then it was a novelty. Probably because everyone was running a billion dollar corporation back then. They all were James Coburn's age. Lee Iacocca was running Chrysler when Looker was released, and that guy was in his late 60s, early 70s. He fought the Japanese in the war and kind of exemplified those CEOs back then. Like Pete Helms and Head Office. You know, they didn't do these huge presentations like we have now. But try to be a part of a corporation that large today and not do that. You'd fry, you'd die, and then your stock would tank. Larry does something pretty stupid here again. He can't go back to his home because he knows that they've been there before, so he goes to his office, as if they don't know where he works. They already stole stuff from his office and home to use to implicate him in a murder. A hotel would have been better, but whatever. Digital Matrix, of course, comes after him to get Cindy and they shoot up the place. So, of course, the police now are going to know that Larry is a target. A plastic surgeon isn't going to run around with a submachine gun, so something else is going on. The scene is great because it is so slow. This is another thing that you can't do anymore. Fight scenes like the one coming up have to be cut every two seconds and a shot at moving pace, and everyone has to know Kung Fu. But the pace here is slowed down so much that it will either make you appreciate how films used to be made or just bore you to death. I'm not sure which one takes more talent. It's like a Steve McQueen type of filmmaking versus, say, Peter Jackson. And that's not a slam... It's just a very great difference. And by Steve McQueen, I mean Hunger and 12 Years a Slave versus, say, The Frighteners or The Return of the King. Tons of cuts. And those are both fantastic films. The music in this scene is wonderful. It really ties the tension into it. It reminds me a bit of John Carpenter's Halloween, which was shot shortly before this. Amazing work. Now, I neglected to mention music in the first episode I did on Blade Runner. That was a huge mistake, especially in that film, because Vangelis did such a fantastic job. And since I already mentioned John Carpenter, he's a good one to go to to study how to use music in a film. He does a lot of his own music, and two of his films are similar to this in electronic scores. Escape from New York, which would be contemporary to Looker, is one, and Prince of Darkness, which is in the late 80s, is another. Those scores are similar to Looker from the audience perspective, not from a songwriting point of view. This whole scene in Larry's office is a bit awkward. The slowness is only part of it. It doesn't really work well past the pacing, not because of the pace particularly, but probably because of the setting or because it's just not shot very well. Very standard shots, particularly in the last half of the scene. I think most shots in this film are pretty unique, and there's some unconventional photography in this. The camera moves a lot, it has a style, and I think a lot of that is lost in this scene, particularly the latter half, like I said, and that's why it doesn't work very well. The smoke is a nice element, but I think it's just not effective in this setting. It's also pretty obvious that they shot out of order, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's cheaper and it's better get all of your shots on the set in a week and you never come back. It's the smart thing to do, but the drawback is you have to have performances that match what happens before and after, which may be shot months before or after. I think that's what was done here. They probably started shooting on the set because the opener is here and they shot this next and it doesn't seem to flow very well. 
If you don't believe me on that, look at the James Bond film, which is right around this time, 1980, For Your Eyes Only. I love that film, but they shot the ending first because it matched with some other scenes and it fit better on schedule, etc. But when you watch it, the ending just doesn't seem to flow very well. It seems very stark. I think that's a good example of how you have to have all of your ducks in a row so that when you edit your film together, it doesn't look chopped up. Magnificent Anderson suffers from this greatly, though that's less because of the sequences and more because of the editorial choices made by the producers. They cut 40 minutes from that film and destroyed it, so nothing flows after the first hour. I believe all of this here was shot at Burbank. That's what I think. I am aware of what people say about opinions. The smoke is fitting because it mimics Larry coming out of the fog. After breaking into Digital Matrix, he knows what's going on, and he's no longer in the dark, etc. But now he has another problem on his hands. They have Cindy. I would rather watch a hundred people get shot than watch one person get a scalpel run across their skin. Ever notice that in every film that features cops, they're either ahead of everyone else or they're way behind the curve? Heroes or idiots? That's a simplification that's not too kind, but just remember that cops are always called after something happens, very rarely before. Like Detective Somerset says in Seven, just recording and cataloging. This car chase scene comes out of the middle of nowhere, and we assume that they're bad guys. They fled. Larry fled, and they were waiting for him. Cindy is either in the car, or she's already at Digital Matrix. And this is another way to shoot something that's very different, very original. And you could take the looker device and shoot very standard or very cliched scenes in a completely new way. Because of the nature of the device, the car chase scene takes a different route from traditional chases and ends differently. You could do this with anything now that you have a different element in the film, like the looker device. A MacGuffin is a MacGuffin, but this device, you could shoot anything with this kind of slant on it. You could do a hysterically funny sex scene, and the guy would just lay there, you know, like Weekend at Bernie's. Of course, nowadays, you'd have a huge fucking argument about consensual sex and whatever. Or you could use the device as an anti-rape device for women, like a pepper spray. The assholes wake up and they're cuffed to the back of a squad car and their balls hurt. Stuff like that. You could shoot something that you've seen a thousand times, like a bank robbery or a gunfight, and you could really upend it with this type of technology. It would be a more original storytelling. So while the car chase scene doesn't look any better or technically or as exciting as, say, the French Connection, which is 10 years before, and which everyone relates every car chase scene to, it's spiced up a bit because of the looker device. Looker would be a very interesting film to remake today, but like most films that are remade, it would probably be fucked up pretty badly. Another film to relate this to would be Ant-Man. By the time Ant-Man came out, we saw superheroes fight each other for 15 years and we were tired of it. And yet the specific take on Ant-Man that he can change sizes at will really made that film different, though it had a normal set piece and action pieces. The fight between Ant-Man and Yellowjacket at the end was both exciting and hysterically funny because of this whole angle. And if you look here, there are moments for comedy in a serious situation. Larry wakes up after his car has crashed. Everyone in the park is in a trance. Very similar. Unfortunately, most of the film is so serious, it starts off 
so, so serious in the beginning, in a, in a very sinister, dress-to-kill kind of way. These women are being exploited and murdered. The comedy here might work against it. And in another inexplicable decision, Larry decides to crash in the back of a Reston Industries rent-a-cop car. Very strange. I just remembered, please excuse me, I just remembered that Albert Finney was in Miller's Crossing about 10 years after Looker, and he's absolutely Oscar material in that film. He's brilliant. I love that film. That and Two for the Road, which he did with Audrey Hepburn. Those have to be his most brilliant films. So we're full circle now. Larry knows what Digital Matrix is doing. He knows who owns it, who runs it. He's been in conflict with the porn stash man who works for them. And this scene with him in the car is just a cheap device to get an unwitting man into the Rustin Industries building so he can look for Cindy. They could have done other things, but they decided to do this because it was different in many ways. He uses the looker device to do it. He's not going in the air vent or through the back door or whatever. And Crichton uses the opportunity to point out who the audience is that is already watching these commercials. In this case, men, and in this case, these two rent-a-cops who are oogling these women in the next scene, they are already our enemies. They even call the girls lookers. There's a couple of lookers. So they are our sheeple because they are already sexist and are more than likely already prone to be influenced by such an exploitive technology. So I'm not a fan of the 15 minutes that gets us from the last fight scene in Digital Matrix to the next one. Even for the rest of the film, it seems rather slow. It really drags in the doctor's office. It will pick up once they get into the finale, but by then you're ready for resolution. And again, because the film is so short, that time watching the film is already down by half an hour. So you don't really notice how much things drag on, but they do drag on. Even this is a long shot. There are a lot of ways to look at Looker in terms of its message, which is going to hit you with a hammer in the next 15 minutes. It's going to be a lot to process. Unlike the first film we reviewed on Super 70, Blade Runner, Looker is not a passive judge of corporations. But unlike our last film, Head Office, it's not a blatant, on-the-nose blame game as well. You can look at Digital Matrix as a company that is exploiting people for monetary gain, but then what would make it different than any other corporation? How is it different than INC International or the Tyrell Corporation? There's that great line in Tucker, the Francis Ford Coppola film about Preston Tucker, when Martin Landau says, you can't say this about cars, you're lying, etc., and Tucker, who is brilliantly portrayed by Jeff Bridges, shoots back, well, what, what do they tell you about soda pop? It rots your teeth out. We have to be careful when we accuse corporations about being across the board evil. Most of them are just trying to provide something that everyone needs. Cars kill people. That's a fact. But cars are a needed commodity, and in order to limit the damage and reputation, most car companies try to entice buyers with, say, fa- safety features. Even tobacco companies do this. Yes, cigarettes kill people. We'll put a warning on labels 
and highlight, less tar, no tar, thicker filter, whatever. Yes, it's all a gimmick to make money. But that is what everyone does. There's no exceptions. You will never buy anything from anyone without avoiding the realization that they are trying to make money. Even people who give you shit for free are doing it in the hopes of making money. So if the judgment is that a company is evil because it tries to make money or manipulates to try to make money, congratulations, that's everyone who reports any kind of revenue. Solar panels make money. Hemp sharks make money. Hybrid cars make money. Patchouli makes money. So how is this company particularly evil? Digital Matrix is not really a company that manufactures consumer items to be purchased. Instead, it has developed a process to sell other people's products using a technology that you can describe as subliminal or hypnotic or whatever. The result of this technology is the targeting of certain demographics of the population for certain products. And again, the difference between Digital Matrix and other companies is not much. You can say that Digital Matrix is the first company to manipulate its consumer market? No. Manipulation and hostile persuasion go hand in hand. Digital Matrix is also not the first company to put in subliminal messages in their commercials. Films and TV have been doing this in the decades prior to Looker. The real issue is the company taking away something from the consumer other than cash, and in this case, the item being stolen from the consumer is that of choice. Digital Matrix takes away the consumer's choice in what he or she wants to buy, and if you think about it, in the end, that is a trust. This is a monopoly. As a consumer, you won't have any choice in what you buy, and any company who wants to compete will have to pay Digital Matrix in order to survive. But other than that, there is something supremely sinister going on. The finale set you're about to see looks a bit strange, but if you've ever seen The Price is Right or Wheel of Fortune, this is how a lot of sets are made and used. You know, it's a brand new car, all of that. So, back to the sinister thing. I want to focus on that. Focus on what James Coburn is saying in his speech there about selling and what to sell and who to sell it to. And you see the finale set is built for this purpose, specific sets built for specific demographics. And now is the time to notice that everyone being put on TV in these commercials, and then this film is, as a whole, and all the models so far that have been worth killing, all have been white. So if you're worried about what a corporation like Reston Industries will do with this type of technology, just think about what the Nazi party would have done with technology like this. And in Germany, the most popular book for over 10 years was Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. That sold more copies than the Bible, and it did it without this technology. Just think of how dangerous something like this could be in the hands of the mullahs of Iran or the Communist Party of North Korea. I know this is an extreme, and Looker doesn't imply this far at all, but just wait a few seconds and see how much they do imply, not even by saying specific words, but by just a few very powerful, very persuasive shots. It's not even the words that are important, it's the fact that the politician 
speaking in front of an American flag and the Capitol. And this sinister activity is robbing the consumer, and that's what we are as citizens, we are consumers, of their choice in a democracy. In effect, it would turn America or any democracy into an oligarchy at best and an autocracy at worst. Every elected office in the country would be up to the highest bidder to Digital Matrix in the best scenario. In the worst scenario, Digital Matrix would create the platform and the party that voters would then have to vote for, unless they only read the newspaper, which, as we know now, is a long shot. There's even more sinister implication than this. If you, if you can imagine something worse, and that is programming. Theoretically, with this technology, you could program anyone to do anything that you wanted. And while we may see this as science fiction, there are many people with letters after their names who think that Sirhan Sirhan was programmed to shoot Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 using brainwashing techniques or subliminal techniques that are only sketchy because we do not understand them. I'm not going to go into that, only to say that if in this circumstance Looker looks forward 30 years, it was by then 12 years after Kennedy's murder, but only just a few years after Patty Hearst was brainwashed using nothing but a closet and repetitive rape. And now we have films like The Kingsman, who use this type of theory to an extreme, to be sure. And we all understand this fantasy land, but in Looker, you don't think that it's that much fantasy. In 1980, you could say, wow, what a different sci-fi thriller. But now, well, with everything that you see on YouTube and Twitter and whatever, is it that far away? Ever walk into a store or ever just go down to the kitchen aisle at Walmart and see a bunch of stuff you'd like to have? Ever have to fight off the urge when you go to Home Depot for one fucking thing and you walk out with $700 worth of shit? Are we that far away? Now is the time for me to ask anyone who's listening who might be an expert in firearms to drop me a line to explain this to me. Is it possible for a revolver to have a suppressor? Doesn't the open chamber mean that the sound cannot be suppressed? I've seen this in this film and others and it just doesn't make sense. I can see how it can suppress the muzzle sound, but not the initial explosion. And if you know anything about this, you can throw me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. A little more humor here, which I get, but again, it might be lost among all the heavy themes that we've been discussing that culminate here after an hour. This is, after all, about the systematic murder of women and the manipulation of the free market, not to mention democracy, but now all of a sudden it's a joke. It's very strange. Of course, the intention might be that Crichton wants you to know that Digital Matrix is exposed to an audience that now knows what's going on. And while everyone is laughing, we have this very, very creepy shot of Jennifer bleeding all over the place and putting her bloody hand on Cindy. It's all very unnerving and very unsettling, and things all of a sudden get very distantiated. Are there things to really laugh about here? Since when this become a satire? In the final shot of James Coburn is very conflicted. It's a very interesting juxtaposition that Crichton uses to debase the bad guys. Just imagine if this kind of technology got into the hands of people who are already selling your personal information to corporations for millions. Credit card companies, social networking companies, 
Just imagine what they would do with it. How long did you play Farmville on Facebook? Ever want to go to Vegas for a couple of days? How about a week? The insinuation here is, is pretty endless. You could create addicts. You could create debt. Or you could eliminate debt. Or you could eliminate addicts. But something tells me there's no money in making people clean and sober. There's no money in eliminating debt. And that is the real sinister aspect of a corporation like Reston here and INC in head office. Money is not the root of all evil, as I think I remember the drummer of Striper saying once in an interview. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And past this, if you look at this film closely, it's not even the love of money. Look at the political angle. That's the real fucked up part of this film. The insinuation here that you could make people as a society or as a culture change their habits or their opinions unconsciously. You could turn an entire population against a certain race, a certain religion, a certain nationality, a certain political issue. That's the real screwed up part about it. So while we think about all these issues, we're faced with the insertion of comedy in the film that we've never seen before, and that makes us uncertain as to how to feel at the end of it, and this may be why Looker isn't one of Crichton's films that people remember outstandingly. And this commercial mimics the one that Larry was watching earlier in an eerie way, because instead of looking at the product, we are all looking at this girl in a bikini. Nice feather hair, does she look a bit like Ginger Lynn? And the music reminds me a bit of Green Ice, a great heist movie. Ryan O'Neill steals a bunch of emeralds from Omar Sharif. Check one that, uh, check that out if you can find it. I probably haven't seen it in 30 years. So, lucky shot here. Coming up, but you're oogling the girl right above Finney's head. And it is a struggle to keep her out of the shot so that it doesn't distract from too much. Here comes Reston in the background, who needs target practice. And so Larry escapes death, and thanks to a lot of bumbling, the hitman takes out the female evildoer, the femme fatale by mistake, and the evil boss kills the evil henchman, also by mistake. They must have missed a day in evil high school. The cop automatically knows where the studio is in the elevator. Check that out. It's coming up. Here. I know where to go. So, there's more humor, supposedly. You know, the porn stash man is on the breakfast table. And Coburn's final shot, which is, which is coming up, the spurt moment. And that's up against Jennifer and Cindy's bloody struggle over the key, which is horrific. And then you've got this serious music. And there's blood on Jennifer's pearls, which you'll see in a second. And I saw the humor in them when I was younger, but now I just don't think that it fits. I see what Crichton was trying to do. I just don't think it works. I really like this film, and I want to like the humor, but I just can't. I can't go that far. It alienates me. 
I do like the kids in the breakfast table shot. They look like the Brady Bunch. I think I had a shirt like that kid had. My breakfast table was like that. The chair, everything, very familiar. Very vanilla, very suburban. There was the blood on the pearls. And the floor here looks a lot like the game grid in Tron. And the surrounding is very much an 80s look. So, where is Rustin taking Jennifer? We don't know. And why doesn't he just call it right now? He's already going to jail for porn stash's man's death. He should just give up. But that's not what evil masterminds do. So it was very intelligent almost up until about 15 minutes ago. So this is a thriller in the absence of Hitchcock. Thrillers were rather in a vacuum after his death. A lot of people who imitated him and learned his ways didn't necessarily go into directing his kinds of films. Richard Donner is a terrific example of a guy who grew up in Hitchcock's shadow and did amazing things with learning his ways. The Omen is just fascinating and in some ways it's better than The Exorcist. And mentioning that, William Friedkin is of course directly descended from Hitchcock and his talent shows, but you can tell Crichton doesn't come from a Hollywood background. Remember, he's a writer finding a career and became quite successful because his scripts and his films were very different than anyone else was writing and discussing at the time. And the last shot, so to speak, of Coburn coming up here, and it's a great shot without the gag, and in any other film, I would think that the spurt reference would have been fine, but with it, it kind of makes it cheap. I don't really agree with it, Many of you might ask, well, what would you have done? I would have pushed the commentary a bit and lay the shot over a politician talking about violence in the media or gun control or something like that. I mean, this is, this is a powerful image. Coburn in the mirror behind him. His image destroyed. And then he falls in front of the camera and spurts. They could have found a better commercial and a better message other than just to make a cheap joke. But anyway, back to Hitch. There's so much to say about originality for sure, which I've already gone over, but learning some Hitchcock would greatly help out Looker. And I can't believe I'm saying that because I'm not actually a Hitchcock fan. I really like his British period. But after that, I think the man should have been committed he was a brilliant director, but well, it's not worth going into. I'm not a huge Michael Crichton fan either. I like the novel Disclosure, and it led me to read a whole lot of his books that I wish I never spent any time on, Jurassic Park being one. And I'm not a huge fan of his films. I like the Andromeda Strain, even though it's dated, but I freaking hate Congo and Sphere. But I like Looker. It has a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think that's unfair. It's not a perfect film, like most films that we're going to look at on the Super 70 podcast. But it is a fascinating film, to be sure. It seems to lose steam around the hour mark, and then a bunch of bad decisions are made that I can't explain. It's not the ending isn't what people want, it's just some of the sets and the environments and the bad guys who can do anything they want until they get to the finale, and then they're all idiots. And Larry starts off as this everyman with great intentions, and he ends up basically lucky. I mean, he's lucky, and 
He's in way over his head. He doesn't overcome anything. He's just fortunate enough to evade and not get shot. That's not really a hero. He gets points for going back for Cindy, but he was going there anyway, you know, as he fell asleep in the back of a damn car. And he's also, the film ends very, it's almost like the film is truncated. Bad guy's dead, cop is standing around somewhere, and then you just walk out the back door. It's not really a fantastic ending for a film. It's almost like, well, they just ran out of stock and we're not going to care to shoot anymore. But the opening of Looker, the stunts, the acting, all solid. The angle on technology, the casting, all good. The political implications, very, very important. It just looked like maybe someone should have had a second shot at the script, or maybe someone else should have directed it. Despite this, I love Looker. I've seen it, geez, like 70 or 80 times. I'm so happy I found it on DVD. My laser disc was water damaged. And after watching this, I am suddenly compelled to buy another copy once it is released on Blu-ray. I'm Dylan Davis, the perfect audience type, 35 to 45. I'm here to watch for you. Thanks for hanging out with me for the last 90 minutes. I hope you found this interesting, whether you watched Looker with the commentary or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcasts, my books, and my blogs at www.thatdylandavis.com, where you can leave a comment under the Super 70 Podcast tab. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me at Twitter, at thatdylandavis, and my books on amazon.com. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can reach her at www.rosalindmcphail.com. Check out her SoundCloud and her other projects. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in the kingdom of Tolmekia. <laughs>